I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid, and more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory and in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Just before we get underway, I wanted to uh, play odd one out. So I've got four pictures to show you. And I want you, as you look at them, to put your thinking caps on and to tell me of the four pictures, which is the odd one out and why. Now, this means you'll need to speak to me, but just at this bit. All right. So the four pictures are these. Um, a rather tatty but valuable old football. Um, the famous football from, where was it, 1986 or something, Maradona's. Uh, hand of God football, okay? Now, um, said football was up for sale recently. Uh, somebody bid £2 million, which wasn't enough. So it's still up for sale if you want a tatty old valuable football. Second picture is a white squirrel, okay? White squirrel. Third picture is a contented Christian. That's what it looks like, all right? And the fourth picture is a block of cheese. So, which one? I haven't got a prize, by the way. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that till the end, should I? Which picture do you think is the odd one out and why? Tim, what a bright man. But, <laughs> The future of Scottish government is, is entirely safe, I'm relieved to say. The block of cheese, absolutely right. Why might that be, Tim? Have you been in my study, a hidden camera? Absolutely right. Bang on. The others, 
the others are all rare, very rare. Well done, that's astounding. Thank you, John. Now, these pictures can go. But, but am I right in saying that? That a contented Christian is a rare thing? Maybe I've happened across the only room in Western Europe full of contented people. And if I have, I'll gladly sit down and uh, give up. But, but I suspect not. I suspect not. Maybe as I as I say these things, you're thinking about your own life and maybe realizing that though you are a follower of Jesus, you have to admit, you still have a sense in your heart and in your life of that not quite being satisfied, a desire for something more. Of course, it's often in material terms, isn't it, if we're honest, our fallen world is permeated by that spirit of material discontent and the sin of covetousness is a is a common one although often it's not recognized in our own hearts and lives increasingly as well as material discontent there's a discontent that can be driven by emotional factors relationships letting us down friendships that we once were strong not being strong anymore And of course, in these particular days of a societal instability, of political failure and world crisis, it does kind of seem impossible, doesn't it, to find contentment or or happiness in any more than maybe just fleeting occurrences. That's why for Paul to say in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content is quite a significant thing to say. The world of Paul's day in so many ways different from ours. In so many ways, not that different actually. I'm sure in Paul's day, people still had material desires. Looking over their garden fence, perhaps at the chariot parked in next door's driveway and thinking I'd like one like that. And perhaps, too, experiencing the, the instability of political life. Losing friends, perhaps, because of background or race or, or gender. These things were real in Paul's day as well. You spent 14 weeks, I think it is, if my counting is right, reading this letter Paul has written. You'll know exactly how he feels about the Philippians he's writing to, about his own life, and especially how he feels about Jesus. And now as he rounds off this letter, thanking the Philippians for what they mean to him, and the gifts they've sent to him via Epaphroditus, gifts of money, I'm sure, of clothes perhaps, and also perhaps of food, he wants them to understand the significance of contentment to the Christian. It's something he says he's learned. He he knows what it is. He knows how to be contented and how to stay that way. And he wants them to know that too. Now, it's probably important just at the beginning that we understand why on earth Paul brings up the subject of contentment. 
Surely there are rather more stimulating or encouraging ways to finish his letter than talking about contentment. Well, he brings it up because he's acutely aware of their generosity and their sacrifice in sending him these gifts. But he wants them to know that while their gifts are welcome, he's not an apostle because it pays well. Uh, He's not an apostle because of everything you get along with that job. He's an apostle because of Jesus. Now, money was always a sensitive subject for Paul. He knew practically how important it was for people to partner with him, but he much preferred to work his own ticket, to to make his tents. He much preferred that than, than to let people think that what mattered to him was, well, how much he got, how much he received for his efforts. Now, just in passing, there's a whole separate sermon in these verses on the subject of partnering and supporting Christians who are working full time. You folks are good at that kind of thing. I know that. But it's worth noting the challenge that Paul puts in here of sacrificially giving in support of the gospel. Even for the independently minded Apostle Paul, it's a significant spiritual act but that's a separate sermon not for today i just leave it there for you to think about two questions for us this morning what was it paul learned about contentment and how having learned it does he indicate to these philippines and to you and me we go about as contented christians so what has he learned about it And I suppose it's worth noting, he's had to learn it. He wasn't a gift he was born with. Sometimes we say, oh, they're a very contented baby. Well, the thing squawks all day. Well, I don't think Paul was born contented. Everything we know about Paul seems to suggest the opposite, doesn't it? Remember chapter 3, where he reminds the Philippians of his zeal as a persecutor. He wasn't going to be content until every trace of Jesus and every trace of the followers of Jesus had had been wiped off the face of the earth. He calls it a secret. It's a mystery. Now, the the Greco-Roman world, they, they loved a mystery. They would have loved Agatha Christie. And they liked it even better when they knew the secret, when they learned the mystery. Liked it even better if their friend hadn't quite worked it out yet. But Paul says, I've worked it out. I've learned the secret. I know what it means, he says, to be content. Now, to help his readers get the answer to the puzzle, he explains it by pointing out what it isn't about. So he says, first of all, listen, it's not about the circumstances of our life. Our personal circumstances have nothing whatsoever to do with being content. He says, verse 11, whatever situation I am in. Verse 12, whether I've been brought low or whether I have an abundance, I am content. Now, you'll know he's writing this letter from prison. That's about as low in society as it's possible to be. 
And you would think being there would make you very discontented indeed. But he also knows the other end of the scale. He's he stayed in Lydia's house. Lydia was a wealthy woman. She sold purple. Her house would have been grand, comfortable, a great place to stay. He wouldn't ever have been hungry in Lydia's house. But he says, having known these two extremes, he's learned that neither of them bring him contentment. Secondly, contentment is not found either in being secure about tomorrow. You know, sometimes if we know things are going to be okay tomorrow or next week, we can relax, we can be happy. Says Paul in verse 12, I have faced plenty and I have faced nothing. I have looked forward, he says, to a meal, to clean clothes, to a shopping trip. And I have looked in an empty purse. I felt an empty stomach. And yet I'm still content. It's not dependent on being secure and certain about tomorrow. Thirdly, it's not content, it's not reliant on how people view me, he says. Our our need to be liked and valued, that's a a deep-rooted human need, isn't it? Very few people can truly say, I don't care what people think. But Paul knew the reality, didn't he, of being valued, but also despised. He knew what it was to be loved, and he knew what it was to be hated. He knew what it was to be agreed with, and he knew what it was to be argued with. And here in our passage, he writes very honestly of a time in his ministry when it seems no one was supporting him. He was almost on his own, he says to the Philippians, except they'd supported him. So he knew what it was like when it seemed the Christian world of his day wasn't even with him. And then fourthly, and more generally from your thinking in the book, And as Ronnie hinted earlier, contentment was not about finding a deck chair and relaxing. You'll know from what you've learned of Paul saying things to the Philippians like this, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Telling the Philippians he feels hard pressed. Telling them they're to stand firm. They're to strive for the gospel. They're to engage in the conflict. So it seems he's saying to us, contentment then is not a state of, you know, glorious inactivity because you've made it. So there's four things there, isn't there? It's not about life and how good life is to us. It's not about how good tomorrow's looking. It's not about how other people view me. And it's not about sitting with your feet up and a cup of tea. Or a non-alcoholic cocktail. Or whatever floats your boat. So if these are things that it's not about, Paul, what on earth is it? What's the secret? Now the word that Paul uses for contentment, that would have been well known in his day. There were people who wandered around wanting everyone else to know that regardless of how hard life got for them, they would always be contented. 
They were the Stoics. They had stiff upper lips. Didn't matter what life threw at them. They were self-reliant. They could manage. Almost as if he looks at them. Paul gives the word some more significant. Because he begins to relate contentment. With his relationship with Jesus. Now I guess as you've read this letter. It will have become really obvious to you. How important Jesus is to Paul. I mean that's an odd thing to say. Of course Jesus was important to Paul. Just as he important to you and to me. But listen for Paul. Jesus wasn't just important. Jesus was everything. Jesus was worth being in prison for. Right at the beginning of this letter, he says, I'm in prison for Christ. This is almost real service, he says. This is what being a Christian is about. Locked up in an uncomfortable jail cell. Then in chapter 3, he tells us Jesus was worth losing everything for. Everything that I've got, whether it's good or bad, into the wheelie bin it goes. Because it isn't worth anything compared with knowing Jesus. And of course, he says, Jesus was worth working to the point of exhaustion for. Chapter 3. I press on, he says. I keep going towards the goal. I'm not giving up. I'm keeping going. And of course, Jesus was worth dying for. Oh, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He says, I can't make up my mind what's better. To go now to be with Christ. Or to keep going for Christ. And the secret Paul has learned... And the secret to Christian contentment he wants people to learn is to be found in Christ Jesus and to be living his life in the power of Jesus. You know, in our passage, verse 13, that's a standout verse, isn't it? We like that verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Apparently it's quite fashionable now to have verses tattooed on your arms. Now, when I was younger, Christians didn't they smoke and they didn't get tattoos. But, you know, I think tattoos seem to be all right. I'm not sure about the smoking, but bless you if you've got that tattoo on your arm. It's a good conversation starter, isn't it? It's often trotted out, of course, and, and, and we claim it, don't we, as a kind of golden verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sinclair Ferguson says, I think Paul wasn't giving us a spiritual wishbone here. He's simply pointing out where he gets his strength from, the one on whom he depends. But you know something? Before that verse can mean anything, chapter 3, verse 10 has to be true. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants us to know, you see, it takes time and a high degree of sustained commitment to know Jesus and continue knowing him better each day. 
to count even imprisonment from Christ the right thing. To lose everything for him if that's his will. To work to the point of exhaustion if we must. And to hold our perspective on life as actually to see death as gain, not loss. Now, as I thought about these verses, I asked myself the question, is my knowledge of Jesus as intimate as that, as certain as that, as as motivating as that? If it's not, then contentment in Christ will continue to elude me. I'll only ever be content if my life is okay, if the future looks bright, if people like me. And there's a deck chair to sit in. Hard stuff. Challenging. You know, every fiber of my being wants it not to be like this. But says Paul, I've learned it. And the lessons are tough. They still are. But the prize, the prize, that's worth everything. And whilst I wait the presentation ceremony, God is going to supply every single need I have in the prison cell, in the emptiness of life, in the challenge of working for him, and even in the pain, ultimately, of life. Now, I guess because it's such a tough course to learn, and very much in the context of Paul, I suppose, recognizing the Philippians' desire To share with him not just the good things, but also, as he says in verse 14, the troubles, the difficulties. They wanted to stand with Paul. Some of what he goes on to say in these closing verses, I think, give us some further clues, if we need them, that will enable us to learn this lesson of Christian contentment. So as we finish, I want to highlight three things to you from these verses that maybe are worth taking away. So so here's your homework. Take these things away and just chew them over in your own mind and heart today and through the week. And open yourself up to maybe what God would say to you about them. They're all in a sense related to the concept of Christian worship. Which of course is not our singing. Good though it is. Uh, and I, you know one of these songs, where's Dave? One of these songs, I remember the last time I think I sang it was 1980 in the Dick Saunders tent. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Must be 1980s. Oh, Margaret and I got married. So that's a long time ago. But it's not our singing. It's not being here this morning either, although it's good that you are. It's not the ability to quote scripture, although we need to do that too. Christian worship, you see, is the dynamic daily relationship of open-hearted living before Jesus. That's what it is. So here are three things for you to think about. Firstly, from verse 17, have a think what you are investing in. What are you investing in? Paul, in verse 17, uses the language of the accountant. He wants to tell the Philippians, you see, that while their gift was tremendous, it was wonderful, it was helpful, it was great to have, it did more for them than it did for Paul. He's not being ungrateful here. 
He's pointing out to them the importance of eternal investment. And the words he uses are current commercial terms, the idea of them being credited. What they gave is like an investment. An investment that will pay them rich dividends one day because they've served God's kingdom. It's accumulating interest for them is the idea that one day will be recognized and rewarded. So the question simply is to us, how much of our lives are lived as an expression of worship that has an eternal priority? You know, if all we ever invest in, be it our time, our gifts, our talents, who we are, if all we ever invest in is temporal in nature, We'll never be contented in Christ. The steward who got these ten talents and goes immediately away and doesn't do what I would have done, find a nice safe place to put them for a while and hope that they return something. No, he goes away and takes the risk and invests them. And he gets ten more. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then you've got that wealthy farmer. Sitting, looking at all that he's got and thinking to himself, what am I going to do with this? I know. I'll build a big barn and I'll put it all in there and it'll be safe as houses in there. Ah, you fool. Dead that night. Gone. If all we ever invest in is temporal, it's about today, we'll never be content. And then secondly, in verse 18... Let's consider how much of our lives really please God. Paul uses here in verse 18 the language of the Old Testament, doesn't he? He talks about their gifts being a fragrant offering. You know that lovely Old Testament picture of of sacrifices and the smell coming up. And we've got to think reverently, but God is going, Ah, my people love me. A fragrant offering acceptable, sacrificially, and pleasing to God. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read words like sacrifice and offering, I can always prick my conscience. And Paul knew that the the Philippians, as they sent the gifts, there weren't loads of wealthy people in that church. Yeah, Lydia was worth a bob or two, but I'm sure in that church too, there were slaves that didn't have two beans Our brass farthings stood up together. It had been a sacrifice to send stuff to Paul. But I think, you know, it's deliberate that Paul uses this language of sacrifice because he wants to remind his readers, you see, of all that Christ did for them in making them pleasing and acceptable to God. For me to live is Christ, he says, to die is gain. Do you know something? Until we accept that Our relationship with God is not just built on sacrifice, but it's demonstrated by us in sacrifice. We will never be contented as a Christian. That spirit of of always holding something back, just in case, of trusting in things that are less certain and ultimately losable, will ensure that. Says Paul, you know, 
for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Do you know, if you want to know the power of the resurrection, you've got to be dead first. Living people don't get resurrected. Now, I know there's a wee theological thing about the end of time where, where, where you know, you can quibble about that. But in general, if you, you, know, you want to be resurrected, you need to be dead first. We need to be dead to the world. We need to be dead to sin. We need to be dead to all of these things that press in and try and motivate and shape our flesh. In the vein of old hymns, we never can prove the delight of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Because there's no other way to be happy, to be content in Jesus than to trust and obey. How much of our lives really please God? It's a sacrifice that pleases God. Thirdly and finally, from verse 20, consider what you find value and worth in Paul says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He kind of erupts into this chorus of praise to the the glory of God. It's much more than just a formula of worship or, or a nice way of finishing his letter. What Paul knew was most valuable, that counted most in his life, was to give God glory. Now that's easy, of course, to do that in church. We can stand and sing and give God glory. It's easy to do in the company of other Christians who can support us and help us. But what about tomorrow in the harsh environment of a godless office? Or maybe in a particular difficulty of health and and, and you've got a diagnosis coming along and you you just don't know how it's going to go. Or in a failure in some way, whether it's in your own life or in someone else's. Or a family concern, and you could, you could write your own list. Can you give God glory in all of these circumstances? Is God to you all the glory? Because I tell you, unless giving glory to God is your waking thought, your living thought, and your final breath, then Christian contentment will always remain out of our grasp. These are difficult things. These these are challenging things. I've had to live with this for a couple of weeks. But we'll never be content in Christ unless he has everything of us. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs He called Christian contentment a rare jewel. Almost as if, you know, if you were to go around Christians and have a look in their jewelry boxes or their, you know, the places where they kept the things that meant most to them, you'd find it hard to find that jewel of Christian contentment. It was a rare thing. But for Paul, it was a secret he'd learned. And now he's sharing it. So that in knowing Christ and in living in his power, It's not going to be a rare thing. It's going to be the natural expression of all our hearts. So that for Paul and for you and me to know Christ 
is to have all things. May God bless his word to us this morning and help us as we seek daily to uh, live for him. Just let's bow our heads and pray as we seek his help for the coming week. Father God, thank you for uh, the word that uh, has remained in scripture for us down through time and comes to us again with relevance into our own hearts and lives. Each of us are in different places before you with different issues going on and different concerns. And probably each of us, if we're honest, lacks that deep-rooted, certain Christian contentment. So, Father, if in whatever we've learned this morning, your Holy Spirit applies it, may it remain in each heart. Make it specially significant that uh, in each heart and life, here this morning, we find in you the great privilege of knowing you and knowing the power of your resurrection, finding their strength in you so that uh, whatever today holds or tomorrow holds or next week holds, we too will have learned the secret of being content. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen. Amen.